Well, let me ask you a question. What do you think of <clears throat> when you think of worship? What comes to your mind? If you ask some folks, they'll say, well, it's going to church. We go to worship. Worship being the service. Uh, some people think it's singing. Some people think it's listening to a message. But uh, the fact is that about 40% of us aren't real sure what worship is, according to uh, a new report that's come out. The Barna Research Group had an astonishing figure, I thought, just this week they came out with a report on worship. And they said something interesting. They said, of all the things that people enjoy when they go to church, they were asked, what is it that you enjoy the most about going to church? And 90% of people, most people, said that they enjoyed worship or they enjoyed experiencing the presence of God. And yet what was kind of disheartening about that, though, is that only about half of them say that when they go to church, they, they feel like they're in the presence of the Lord. Most of us want it, but only half of us feel like we get it. Why is that? Is God only on this half of the church? And if... And they divide it down the line. Here we are. Does God prefer women over men? Why, why is it that only about half of us get it, and yet most of us want it? What is it? Either God's here or He's not here. Well, He's here because He promises to be. So what can we do in order to experience His presence as most of us want to when we come? I'd like for you to turn with me, if you would, Open the Bible to John, chapter 4. One of the most famous encounters in the life of Jesus is when he spoke with this foreign woman by a well. The woman at the well, a famous story. And there's a lot we can learn from this text. We could learn about where to look for significance in life, where not to look for significance in life. But particularly what we want to focus on today is as it relates to our core value. Jesus and this lady kind of get off on a, a rabbit trail in their discussion. And it's that rabbit trail that Jesus unearths some wonderful truth about worship. And why it is, and really the answer is there, as to why so many of us, though most of us want to experience the presence of God when we come, only about half of us do. Why is that? Well, that's what Jesus addresses. John 4, we're going to start in verse 5. <clears throat> so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. One of the things that uh, excited me the most about going to Israel last year was being able to go to this spot. If you go to Israel, you'll see, there's a, a town called Shechem between these two big mountains. And on just outside of the town of Shechem, in some little Orthodox church over here, in the basement, is this well. This is, uh, this is not my wife. She did go with me, but this is... Uh, they, they don't let you take pictures in there. I asked the guy, can I take a picture? He said, no. I said, how about for five bucks? He said, no. He says, this is a church. So, but what's interesting to me, you can't take a picture because it's a church, but if you're standing here over to the right, you're welcome to buy plenty of them. 
while you're there. So anyway, but what's so neat to me and what was so moving to me, in fact, almost to tears when I was at this spot, is because there are many places you can go in Israel and you can think, well, Jesus was in this area. Okay, and, you know, we got about 100 and so square feet. Jesus was in this area. But uh, uh, there are very few places you can go and say Jesus was here, right here. And this is one of those places. It's never, there's no dispute at all that this is the well that's spoken of here in this text. And we're told that Jesus came, was in this spot, and it was about the sixth hour. And that means, it doesn't mean six o'clock, it means six hour after sunup, which would be about high noon. So Jesus is here during the hottest part of the day, sits by the well, and then this woman comes, starting in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's fascinating, though, the way that, that John wrote this in the original language is an emphasis that we kind of miss here. Uh, he, he, she says, you being a Jew, and the emphasis is on the word you and Jew. You, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then John adds in the, little, in the parentheses there, and again, emphatically, he stresses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In other words, what Jesus is doing is, is breaking every cultural taboo of that day regarding Samaritans. Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And here we have uh, not only this racial separation that Jesus is bridging, but also the gender separation back in that day was particularly, uh, there was to be a wall. And not only that, Jesus was a rabbi. So you have a male Jewish rabbi talking to a foreign woman, a Samaritan woman. This is just, you just don't do this in that culture. And here Jesus is doing it. And so she's shocked. Why, why are you asking me for this? But notice Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? <clears throat> She's shocked, first of all, that Jesus would talk to her. And Jesus responds and says, you're shocked, basically, that, that I would talk to you, a Samaritan woman? Again, the division there. Jesus is bridging a gap. But when he says, if you really knew who you were talking to, you'd be the one doing the asking. And I would give you living water. What he's saying is, you have no idea the kind of gap I'm bridging. It's not just a male talking to a female. It's not just a Jew talking to a, a Samaritan. It's not just a rabbi talking to a layperson. It is God in the flesh talking to a sinner. Talk about bridging a gap. There's a barrier there that is stronger and higher and more secure than any kind of cultural barrier that we have. In fact, it's an impasse. Because a person who is not perfect, a sinner, cannot be, could not enter into the presence of one who is holy, 
who is only God or the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here is Jesus reaching out to this woman. And he's saying, if you knew who I really, really am, if you knew who I really was, then you'd be the one asking me and I would give you living water. Not just water, but living water. But she doesn't get it. She thinks in the natural. She's not thinking spiritually here because she doesn't know who he is. And so she says, um, how are you going to give me any water? The well is deep. You don't have anything to draw with. And this well is deep. It's probably been filled up with rubble throughout the centuries. But when we were there, we drew some water and then took some water and poured it down in the well. And I don't know how long it, it took. It took a while before we heard the splash. But we calculated... Somebody there knew the distance of falling per second or whatever. We calculated it was about 70-something feet deep. A very deep well. And she says, you got nothing to draw with. And obviously, Jesus is not talking about real water. And so he brings it down to, gets even more focused of what he's talking about. He's not talking about real water. He's talking about something spiritual. Because he says in verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Notice the spiritual implications here. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Isn't it wonderful how Jesus is able to just kind of cut to the issue? You know, here we're talking about water. He tries to communicate through a metaphor. You know, I'll give you living water. She still doesn't get it. He says, I'll give you living water springing up in you for eternal life. She still doesn't get it. So, she, so Jesus says, look, let's get right to the issue here. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you've had five, and the one that you have now is not your husband. It's wonderful how Jesus is able to get right to the issue. And if she was shocked that a male Jewish rabbi would talk to her, a Samaritan woman, how much more shocked would she be that this total stranger knows her sin? Women in those days didn't come at noon to draw water. That's the hardest part of the day. Uh, they would come in the morning or they'd come in the evening because that's when it was cool. And if you're going to lug you know, gallons of water back to the village on your head... You're going to want to come when it's cool. So they come when it's cool, but that's also the time when all the ladies in the village would come together. So it was a social time to talk as well as it was a practical time to draw water in the cool of the day. This woman instead comes in the heat of the day. Why? Because there's nothing social happening at that time. Clearly trying to avoid the social, whereas the other ladies would come for that purpose. And we know here through what... She and Jesus have said, why is it she came at noon and not at sunup? This lady had sought a life in relationships with men. That summarized her life. In fact, if we were to read a portion of this chapter, we're not going to read the whole thing, but there's a portion of this chapter where she goes back into the city and she says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. 
In other words, her whole life is summarized by the fact that she had a series of men. She says, that's my whole life. That's all I've ever done. I've had a series of men. I know that there are some of you who could summarize your life in a very similar way. Maybe it's a series of relationships. Maybe, like her, it's a series of marriages. Maybe you got her beat. She was out of five and headed into number six, maybe. Or maybe she just dumped the whole system and decided, shoot, we'll just live together. And yet, you've got to see a pattern, as she certainly had to see in her life, of the futility of this person, and then that didn't work, so this person, and then that didn't work, and so this person, and it just continues and continues and continues. And I think Jesus' picture here is beautiful when he says, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. I wonder if he meant that metaphor to also include what she was doing in the natural realm. That everyone who drinks of anything that this world gives isn't going to satisfy. Is not going to satisfy. You'll thirst again. Do it for a little while, but then, yeah, forget that one. Let's try the next one. Her whole life, she said, was summarized by these series of failed relationships and looking for love in all the wrong places. And she comes to the, the well at noon to avoid her scandal, to avoid the fact that she's done this, you know, and almost to keep to stay in denial. But she comes there at noon to avoid the crowds, and who does she find but God? She comes there hoping to be anonymous, and she comes to a man who says, uh, you've had five husbands. Came here to be anonymous and find somebody that knows all about you. Isn't it wonderful how you can run, but you can't hide from God? He will find you. Not because he wants to find you and squash you and say, ah, you've had five husbands. But so he can raise the real issue that you've been dealing with all your life and say, look, you're going to thirst again if this is what you're after. But what I give you, you'll never thirst again. You see, Jesus is not just raising the problem. He raises the solution. Because he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me. And I would give you living water. So he doesn't just raise the problem. He bridges that gap to the solution. And the solution, of course, is in Jesus himself. If sin is the barrier that keeps us apart, then sin has to be dealt with, and it was dealt with. In fact, it was placed on Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins. And anybody who places their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, their sins are forgiven. And there is a satisfaction within you that wells up like a, like a spring, like living water, that nothing else can satisfy so in just a few words, Jesus shows her her sinful past and her need for forgiveness. And what happens when all of a sudden somebody hits your hot button? You know, in conversation, when somebody brings up your past or something, the very thing that you're trying to avoid. You change the subject, don't you? Which is what she does. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You know all about me. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain... And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. See what she's done? She figures out the guy's a prophet, obviously, because he knows all about her. So rather than dealing with the issue of the husband, she says, uh, let's talk about theology. Where are we supposed to worship? 
Should worship here on this mountain? And she points up to one of those two mountains. Or should we worship in Jerusalem? Which is it? We say it's supposed to be here. You Jews say it's supposed to be there. And it's this rabbit trail that they go off on where Jesus begins, as, she, as he answers her question, he talks to her about the issue of worship. And look what he says in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, Jesus is telling her it's not so much where you worship that matters, it's how you worship that matters. And here is the only place that I'm aware of in the entire Bible that we're told that God the Father seeks something from us. And what does He seek? He seeks worship, true worship. And what is it that makes worship true as opposed to not true? When we worship in spirit and in truth. And to that, you wish you had about a three-page footnote to say, what is that? What, is, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, whatever it is, is the answer to why most of us want to experience God when we come, but only about a half of us do. Because we don't worship in spirit and truth. So let's talk about that a little bit. And first, let's talk about worshiping in truth. What does that mean? It means simply that you apply the truth when you worship. Look at a, uh, the screen at a verse, very common verse. Some of you might know this. Unfortunately, its familiarity robs us of its punch. But Romans, Romans 12.1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, Paul is saying that worship is not just an emotion that you feel when you come to church on Sunday. It's not just something that you do in church on Sunday. But worship is to be your entire life. You worship God in truth when you apply the truth when you worship. And here he says, he describes it as a life of sacrifice that is a life of worship. Listen to the verses that follow. We don't have them on the screen, but just listen. The verses that came after this in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, For, the, for through the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Right there in the context of your spiritual act of worship, he says, be humble with one another. The way we've worded our core value, again, it's not just for the individual believer, but it's for the body as a whole. It's for all of us when we come together. Kathy and I have a good friend in Tyler, and we go there from time to time to visit with them. An elderly couple in their 70s, mid-70s. And uh, last time we were there, we stayed the night with them and went to church with them the next morning. 
And they, they have kind of a modern service where, much like we have, first hour, uh, they'll sing modern praise songs as well as old hymns. But they had the modern praise songs was the emphasis this, that morning. And I asked him about it, and he said, you know, I prefer the, the old hymns. And I said, well, then why do you come to this service where they do the, the, the modern worship and praise songs? And he says, because there are other people here that that really ministers to, and I want to be a part with them. And I thought, what an outstanding example. So many of us today are divided over styles of music when we go to church. But this guy was saying, look, style of music doesn't matter. I want to go and worship with the church. Whatever style is happening. We all have preferences. We all have musical preferences, even in professions. For example, dentists, their favorite hymn is Crown Him with Many Crowns. <laughs> Weathermen like There Shall Be Showers of Blessings. Golfers like There's a Green Hill Far Away. Politicians like Standing on the Promises of God. IRS auditors, they like I Surrender All. And shoppers like the hymn, The Sweet By and By. <laughs> but seriously, many of us go to church and we assume that God shares our taste in music. And that if it's done a certain way, God likes it and he's pleased. If another kind of music is done, God doesn't like it and he's not pleased. Because how can God be pleased if I'm not pleased? And we bring with us these kind of expectations. But if the aim of our worship is to honor God, how much do we honor Him when we don't allow somebody else's preference as well to be part of the body as a whole? Quite a few years ago, I had a guy come to my office and uh, he said he just could not find a church that he liked because he said, nobody does good, mu nobody does good music. And I said, you know what your, your problem is? I said, your problem is that you're an outstanding musician. You see, just as it's true, and Jesus said it's hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and he related that to uh, a rich man, saying it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven because he loves his money. It is also true, and I confess, as a musician, it is also true. It is difficult for a musician to worship through the means of music, because in his mind, what he is thinking is, Eh, I could do better than that. Mm-hmm. You fellow musicians can laugh in great sympathy with me. It's true. And, you don't even, and what's true about this also is you don't even have to be. Musician, it's an occupational hazard. But even with all of us, we bring our own preferences to the table in church. You know, in the real world, when we go out, we pay for what we want. You know, you don't like this restaurant, you don't go to that restaurant. You don't like this movie, you don't go to that movie. Nobody's forcing you. But you've got to come to church, right? And when, when you're, you're forced to worship in a song that you don't like, all of a sudden that grates against our American culture that gets what we want. Luis Palau made a great statement. He said, beware of the mindset of looking to see if the church will meet your needs. When my family is ready to leave for church, we take certain expectations about what we want to receive, and we leave them at home with our dog. Consequently, everything we do receive is a blessing. 
Worship is intended to be corporate. We are not unified by our common tastes. We are unified by a common faith. What would it look like if we came to the service and we said, what can I do to be a part of the whole, rather than what can you do to please me? Do you love me enough to sing my hymns? Do I love you enough to sing your praise choruses? If the answer is no, then we've got a bigger problem than style of music. We've got a problem that we're bringing with us pride. And so here is a principle that we can apply at this point. That worshiping in truth includes an abandonment of all pride. Worshiping in truth includes an abandonment of all pride. We will all experience the presence of God a whole lot more if we'll take our pride and leave it at home with the dog. So when we come, whatever we receive is a blessing. And to realize, yes, we have preferences. We take our preferences and enjoy them when we are by ourselves. But when we come together as a whole, our, our purpose and point is to minister to the whole body, not just to the individual, but to the individual and the body as a whole. That is worshiping in truth, where you apply the truth even when you're worshiping. And you abandon pride. Jesus said, though, that we also worship in spirit. <clears throat> worship in spirit. And, then in, and he kind of even explains to us what that means. He says, because God is spirit, meaning he's not flesh like us. Uh, he is spirit. And anybody that's going to worship God, who is spirit, their spirits must be engaged. Not just their flesh, not just going through the motions, but their spirit being engaged. If you look throughout the scriptures, you see uh, various people, when they approach God, are terrified by His presence because of the sin that, that they carry. And Jesus his emphasis here is in worshiping in spirit. You might say, by way of application, that worshiping in spirit includes a heartfelt response to God's holiness and grace. Worshiping in truth is applying the truth when you worship. Worshiping in spirit is including your spirit when you worship. It is a heartfelt response to God's, first of all, God's holiness. As I said, many people throughout the Bible, when they come into the presence of God's holiness, they hit the dirt. you got Abraham almost groveling when he's praying for Sodom. Oh Lord, please don't be mad, I'll ask one more time. God says, yes, oh God, please don't be mad, I'll ask one more time. you got Job saying, I put my hand over my mouth, I didn't know what I was saying in the presence of God. you got Isaiah looking up at the glory of God and saying, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Peter, after Jesus had done some incredible miracle on the Sea of Galilee, and all these fish came up, Peter falls down before Jesus and says, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. You see, whenever we as people who are sinners come into the presence of a God who is holy, there is a barrier there. And it makes us real uncomfortable because we know we're in trouble. But what does that do when Jesus says, Look, if you knew who I was and you asked me, I will give you living water. In other words, I will give you the forgiveness that will bridge that gap. 
Our fear of the holiness of God then becomes an incredible adoration of God's holiness because of God's grace. That's why we say worshiping in spirit includes a heartfelt response to God's holiness and grace. Worship is not something you come to get. Unfortunately, in a lot of places, it's like that. I go to church to worship so that I get my buzz for the week, so that I feel good. Well, that may be worshiping in spirit, but it's not worshiping in truth, because the truth of God's word that says that praise is a sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of praise. It is something you give. It is a response to God's holiness and grace. It's not something God gives you. It's something you give him in response to what he has done for you. Worship is actually from the Anglo-Saxon word or words, worth-ship. In other words, worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth and responding to him with praise. And so I think part of the struggle that we feel most of us want to enjoy the Lord's presence when we come, to give him praise, but half of us don't do it. Why is that? I think because a lot of us don't prepare our spirits before we come. We'll rush in. We had a fight with the wife on the way up. The kids haven't been obeying. All this stuff happens. And believe me, isn't it funny how Sunday morning it happens more than any other time? Because the devil doesn't want you to worship the Lord. And I have to date, and this is not a boast, this is just a statement of practicality, I don't want to see my family before I teach on Sunday mornings. Because I know that's how the devil operates. I'll leave the house before they ever get up. Because I want to be able to prepare my mind, not only to do this teaching, but also to worship God without distraction. So, any of you want to try that, you're welcome to come up here with me at, uh, pretty early, <laughs> real early, and uh, join me. No, but I'm saying, we provide for you, I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you've gotten here uh, you know, before the service starts early enough, you see, you know, Brit's got CDs going. You know, nice music, you can come in, we try to provide an atmosphere for you to quiet your heart before we begin. In the report that I mentioned to you earlier, Barna had a great quote. He said, without giving themselves time to clear their minds and their hearts, of their daily distractions and of other problems. Many people attend a worship event but never enter a worshipful frame of mind. A large share of churchgoers do not pray or meditate or confess or focus on God prior to the start of the worship event. One consequence is that they find it difficult to connect with God spiritually. There's a text that Paul wrote in Ephesians couple of verses that I'd like to read to you. Look at the screen for just a sec. He says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. The idea there is don't be controlled with wine and by extension with anything else. Don't, be, don't let anything else control you. But what's to control you? Be filled with the Spirit. And then the text goes on, and let me just summarize before I read it. How are you filled with the Spirit? Speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks. Notice that be filled with the Spirit is a command. It is something we are to do. It is not something that is done to us. It is a command that we are to seek. It is something that we are to do. How are you filled with the Spirit? How are you empowered with God's Spirit? He tells us, speaking 
to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice, not just one, but psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a diversity. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. The woman at the well ran back into town and say, said, Come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. She admitted her wasted life. We know that she placed her faith in Jesus Christ. When we come together on Sundays, we should worship in spirit and truth and worship the Lord God with the body of Christ. We should worship in spirit and truth. Why? Because that's what God seeks. They work off of each other, not independently of each other. Our emotions turn into worship when in response to truth, we give something back to God. Father, we thank you today that you are present here with us, and we know that you are. Lord, we know that most of us here, if not all of us here, eagerly desire to be in your presence. And we eagerly desire, Lord, to express to you our true heart's passion is to say thank you. That while there was a great barrier between us because of sin, our Lord Jesus has taken that barrier away when he died on the cross. And so, Father, we come to you today and in truth, we apply truth to our hearts as we worship and abandon our pride. We also come to you and worship in spirit, that is, we take a true heart reflection and a true heart response to your holiness and to your grace. So as we worship you now, may your ears be pleased, not just with our words and our tongues, but with the heart from which they stem. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.